Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Today, we are so excited to welcome a longtime member of Sakara Science and Advisory Council to the podcast. Dr. Robin Burzen is the founder and CEO of Parsley Health, where Danielle and I both go for primary healthcare services. Robin founded Parsley in 2016 on a mission to make whole body transformative medicine accessible to everyone through better services and smarter technology. After raising a 26 million Series B round in 2019, they now have clients coast-to-coast who can visit their doctors either in person or via telemedicine. A summa cum laude graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, Robin completed medical school at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons and trained in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. She has also trained in functional medicine with the Institute for Functional Medicine. Robin recently gave birth to her second child. She is an awesome medical doctor, CEO, badass businesswoman, and someone that we consider a close friend. We're all calling in from our homes, all sheltering in place right now. So if the sound quality is a little different from our regular recordings, that is why. But we are so excited to have you with us today. We'd love to talk you about functional medicine and then of course what's on everybody's minds a little bit of COVID-19. Whitney and I went back and forth on if we should even do some podcast content about it because it just feels like there are so many voices and so many opinions and did we kind of want to add to the noise but then we decided you know our our intention and our mission with Sakara and the podcast specifically is to put out content that educates, informs, and inspires. And since we have Dr. Robin Burzen on the podcast today, um, we thought she'd be the perfect person to talk to about COVID, about what's going on. We are so pleased to welcome Dr. Robin Burzen. It's great to see you guys virtually. Thank you for having me. We just wanted to start out with asking you, what is the state of things right now? Like, What are you seeing And what can you tell us a little bit about COVID-19? Well, you know, it's been sort of an unbelievable four weeks or so since um, it's hard to believe that only four weeks ago we were transitioning to work from home and, and wondering, I remember with our team um, wondering, you know, is this the right thing to do and how long will this be? And it's, it's just, things are changing so rapidly every day and every week. And I think that for us as physicians, you know, we, we have almost 50 physicians across the country at Parsley now, um, a big group of them in New York city, which is where we started, but we also have telemedicine in 30 States, um, and growing. And we also have centers in on the West coast in LA and SF. And so we had to, as an organization, very quickly, build an internal task force, assign specific providers just to have handle COVID inquiries because the information coming from the CDC and the World Health Organization and the government day by day were changing. We're often conflicting. And, you know, as physicians, like our greatest fear in life is saying the wrong thing or being wrong. Like we're just terrified of it. And, and yet in this situation, we had to provide care and give answers, even as we in the early days didn't have them ourselves. Um, and so, And then also when we think back to the month prior to our general awareness of this, we think, wow, we probably saw a bunch of cases and we just didn't know. And so where we are today really varies across the country, right? It's very geographically heterogeneous. Like all the things that make us love New York, the people make the place. 
are also some of the reasons why this is spread really, really quickly here and maybe will spread slower in other places. And so what we know now and, and why I'm feeling a glimmer of optimism is that First of all, we get a lot of questions about kids and, and women in pregnancy. And I just did like two lives and articles about this. So it's top of mind. We haven't seen across the globe any deaths in young children. We've seen very few severe cases in young children. And women, pregnant women, while they are at higher risk overall of just more infections in general, because there's some changes in your immune system in pregnancy that make you slightly higher risk for, not dramatically slow, but slightly higher risk for things like the flu. We're not seeing pregnant women by and large be more affected than, than others. So it's not an overly high risk category. And then the studies that have been done where they've looked at um, the babies of women who have been exposed so far, the data is early, but so far they're seeing that those children are either asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic, um, even if they have shown some exposure. So all of that is the, the good news and the glimmer of hope of, of the data coming out. The two things that I think, and I'm not the World Health Organization or the CDC, and I generally, our policy at Parsley is just to know what they say and make sure that we're on top of that, but is to, to say that we have two things that I think are going to get us out of this. First of all, um, social distancing and taking it really seriously. Um, I wish we had done it as a country on mass and at once, um, and we haven't done that. And so my suspicion based on what I've read is that that could prolong this a bit, um, which is not ideal because as painful as that is, the faster we can get through this, the better in the long term. And then the the other thing that's really exciting as of this re- this recording is that testing is coming and antibody testing is actually here. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the testing that we've had that's been very short supply is the nasal swab. And so this is a nasal swab that really needs to be done by a medical provider because you have to stick it way, way up your nose. It's not sort of just the tip of the nostril kind of thing. And that uses PCR technology that detects viral DNA if they get that. And we've had a short supply of the swabs We've had a short supply of places to go um, to get that test, those tests. And now at this point, people who are asymptomatic, certainly, or even mildly symptomatic with classic COVID symptoms are not recommending being tested. They're not even testing people in ERs now unless they're getting admitted to the hospital. The lack of a coordinated testing response across the country is, in my view, a travesty. And it's one of the things that we will look back on in this and just really have to investigate and ask why. Because the more testing that we have, the faster we could track this illness. Right now, for our patients at Parsley who write in and are worried about, I had two patients, um, a married couple write in today, displaying potential COVID symptoms. We are not recommending that they go get testing because they are not high risk. And high risk are smokers over the age of 60 or have one of the underlying health conditions like heart disease, diabetes, severe and active autoimmune disease, you know, I'm not going to recommend that they go out and get tested because I don't even want them going to one of the few urgent care centers offering testing. It's not worth it. If people are severely ill, meaning high fever, short of breath, coughing, and really having trouble breathing and or experiencing any altered state of consciousness, then those are the people who should be going to the emergency room and being hospitalized. But we view our role at Parsley as keeping you healthy at home. We have complete telemedicine services. All of our patients who are local to our centers and our cities are just seeing us via telemedicine. I mean, the reality is they were doing that anyway. So we we always offered telemedicine. So it's not really even new for us. We're just now at the moment exclusively telemedicine temporarily. And then where we're going, which I'm really excited about is antibody testing, which means that we can do a blood test and see, are you currently reacting to the virus? Meaning, are you exposed and it's early in your trajectory? Or are you past it and you only have memory antibodies? So there's a couple kind of antibodies you can have. The test that we are going to be offering at Parsley has um, IgM, IgA, and IgG antibodies. If you're very early in your exposure, around day three to 17 or so, it can vary by person, but that's kind of the window, you would have IgM and IgA antibodies. If those are completely gone and you only have IgG, there is a time when they'll overlap, but you only, if you're past that and you only have IgG, then you're felt to be past at least day 14 or so of exposure. Doesn't mean you, if you get the antibody test and these are going to be widely available, we believe very soon that you get an IgG test that just says IgG. This is not, oh, social distancing's over. Everybody go 
run outside. That's going to be an in lockstep government-led decision. But why I'm so excited about the antibody testing, um, and we are going to be making this available to our members at Parsley very soon, um, probably starting on the West Coast, but then across the country for some logistical reasons, is that as we have mass antibody testing, we'll be able to really understand and track the progression of the disease in a way that we haven't been able to. And that knowledge is power. And in this case, statistics are power. And we've been literally flying blind. And so I think that that will be part of, of the solution um, of winding our way out of this, you know, far before we have a vaccine available. And I know that you're saying it's not just you get this test, you see you have antibodies, everybody run back out to the streets and get back to normal life. But what, what does it mean? Does it mean that you are immune to getting it again? Does it mean that you can go and, and help somebody if they're sick? a great question. So what it means is that if you have the early antibodies, the one that says that you're maybe newly actively inciting the infection, it'll give us some guidance on for how long you would need to self-quarantine. And it will help us kind of give you some better recommendations around that as a, that are per, more personalized to you as opposed to some generic ones. If you do have those early antibodies, we're likely going to be recommending retesting a couple weeks later to show that you now only have the memory ones, only have the IgG ones, because that's also how we're going to mark this in time. You could have the early antibodies and you could be on day three or you could be on day 12. So repeating the test is inevitably going to be something I believe that's going to end up be playing, playing a role here. If you just have the IgG antibodies, for a lot of people who've had symptoms over the past few months that they didn't know, it will confirm whether or not your body has seen this virus. And let's all just be aware, no test is perfect. Our tests are over 97% sensitive and 98% specific, which is like as, as high as it gets. But any any test has a fail rate. And I won't get into like the, the, the crazy statistics of false positives and false negatives here, but the tests that are very, very high 90 sensitive and specific are like pretty accurate, right? And so we'll have a really good sense, not a perfect sense, but a really good sense if your body has seen this virus before. So it'll confirm that for a lot of people if they have been exposed. If your test shows that you have the IgG antibodies only and you know that you what you had and that you've passed a certain point, it'll give us a, a date or a timeline in which to give you the opportunity to stop self-isolating. For instance, if you're in your own home and you've been symptomatic and you're trying to self-isolate from like your own family members or the people that you live with. So um, it's not going to overnight end social distancing, but it will help us start understanding what percent of the population has been exposed, how the disease is moving, right? Right now we're kind of looking at symptomatic data and temperature data, which is helpful, but it's not necessarily giving us that concrete answer of who has had it and who hasn't. And then when it comes to immunity, the answer is we don't 100% know yet. We think that having had it will confirm some level of immunity. Now, does it mean that you can never get it again? We don't know the answer to that yet because it hasn't existed around in the world yet long enough for us to know if people who've had it can't get it again or to what degree it helps their bodies respond better the second time. When you think about you know, the annual flu, like the regular flu, you know, you can get the flu multiple times in your life, right? And the flu, actually, there's many strains of the flu, which is why the flu shot each year is a little different because they calibrate it differently every year. This, the flu is an RNA virus. This is also an RNA virus. So that means it mutates quite quickly. And so we don't know, frankly, if we're going to be dealing with multiple strains of coronavirus. We don't know yet if we're going to be looking at there's more severe or more mild versions and to, to what degree you will be immune. Um, I think it is interesting and encouraging though, that people who have had it and cleared it, who have been tested are in some cases donating plasma. Plasma is the fluid in your blood, everything other than the red blood cells. It's the fluid that contains all your, of your immune factors. And so the fact that we're using that in some cases in treatment makes me really hopeful that there's going to be as some significant level of immunity conferred for people who have had this. And I think over time, as we are able to use these tests, like we should just have this test all the time. Like it shouldn't just be something that is hard to get and that will come with time. And I think that will give us the information we need to kind of get through this. And I read that they think there might be a resurgence in the fall. Is that true? And if so, why? 
So historically, uh, we've seen many of these types of flu-like viruses, other coronaviruses, of which there are others other than COVID-19 in circulation, are typically around more in the wintertime, which we think has a lot to do with their temperature sensitivities. And so the working theory has been that cases will decrease in the summer as um, we go into summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And that inevitably, as the climate is more friendly to the virus, that there'd be more cases in the fall. That's making, frankly, a lot of assumptions that this is going to behave like the flu. Um, And based on some data we have from other countries, but as a lot of the countries that have been most effective have also been in their winter, I don't think we 100% know the answer to that yet. Yeah, I look at countries in Africa and that are closer to the equator and they're still being affected. So it makes me wonder if that'll be the case or not. Yeah. And it's really those countries, a lot of those countries have, you know, non-zero numbers of, of COVID. I think the question for us is it's, it's less about having it. There's not, there's no more world of all or nothing, right? Cause everywhere has it. And that is forever. There's no future world without COVID, but it's how prevalent and surging it is it in a given time of year or in a given country at a given moment, because that is wherein lies the problem where we don't have the resources as we're seeing in New York to deal with it if a lot of people have it at once. Um, And so I think that's the thing that we're going to frankly learn this summer in in the United States. And so do you think that a majority of the population is going to need to go through this virus at some point and build that immunity or... What are your thoughts around that? Because right now we're, we're social distancing. We're hoping to flatten that curve so that as people go through this illness, if they need medical attention, that our, our medical support system can handle that influx. But does that mean basically that everybody's going to need to get it at some point? What are your thoughts on that? It doesn't mean that literally every single person needs to get it. Basically, the number of people who have it at once needs to be low enough that the transmission is slow enough that not everyone is getting it. Does that make sense? So if we flatten the curve enough, it does mean that it will continue being transmitted, especially at times of year when the virus flourishes, if that is the case for us seasonally. But it doesn't mean that every single person literally has to get it. And then the hope is that over the next 12 to 18 months on the longer end, that we'll have some sort of vaccination um, that's hopefully effective, right? Because a vaccine has to be proven to be effective, to be useful. So it's not just about, I think people forget this sometimes. It's not just, oh, we need a, a vaccine. We need a vaccine that works. So, you know, there's vaccines that have been really successful at effectively stamping out infectious diseases in this world, right? And then there's other vaccines, which again, I think of the flu shot, you know, it's not that we no longer have the flu, it's just that we don't have it in such extreme, to the, such an extreme. Is that because it's both like flu being an RNA virus? Is that connected to the vaccine and, and how well it works? That's very specific to the flu and the way the flu mutates in the way that there seem to be multiple strains of the flu in any given season um, and that those change over time. And so it's not only RNA, it's not that all RNA viruses are going to have a vaccine that works that way. I think it's more about, we just don't know enough about this because it's so new to know how effectively it's going to behave. You know, they remember, you know, certain viruses like H1N1, right? Or even, you know, years ago that uh, we thought were going to be um, extremely deadly and then weren't, right? So how viruses kind of ultimately kind of march through their trajectory can be variable. And I think that's what makes this scary and really tricky from, you know, a public health standpoint is that we are not in control here. We don't know exactly which path this is going to take. And when it comes to different types of treatments that you're seeing, can you tell us about anything hopeful there? Yeah, I mean, for most people, so let's remember that 80% of people and even more than that, um, it seems, of children are asymptomatic. And that means that that this is a tricky one because people can have it and spread it and not realize it. But at the same time, it means that more people than not um, are completely asymptomatic. And then people who are symptomatic, the vast majority of them um, do not have a severe case. They are 
having fever, having cough, having shortness of breath, sometimes diarrhea, fatigue, loss of taste and smell. There are some other symptoms, but those are the big ones. Um, and like the most flus, right? They're they're getting through it. There is a talk about could a malaria drug called chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, um, which apparently the government has stockpiled and individuals have stockpiled, could potentially be a treatment, but that has not been proven yet. And I think the important thing to stress is do not stockpile medications, everyone. People who need them, need them. We need people with malaria to have access to this drug because it has been shown to fight that. And it has not been proven yet to be a a treatment. Most people just have to get through it. The people who get very severely ill end up with something called uh, ARDS, which is a condition in the lungs where effectively the lungs are under such duress from the immune response to the virus that they fill with fluid and they have to be on a respirator. And what makes this a little bit different than the flu is that in most cases, we do lose anywhere from 20,000 to 80,000 people a year in this country to the flu, which people forget. Usually the elderly and the immunocompromised and people with underlying chronic conditions are who similarly have more severe cases Oftentimes with the flu, though, what ends up happening is that they get a secondary infection, like a bacterial infection or pneumonia, that ends up being the thing that is harder to control. And with coronavirus or COVID-19 specifically, it seems to itself incite the reaction um, that leads to this respiratory distress um, more frequently that's requiring intubation and being on a ventilator. And And then as we've seen, there are cases of younger people even as young as their 30s and 40s, very rare, but still there are some cases of younger people or people without underlying chronic conditions getting getting severely ill, and that's not the majority. But in, even in those cases, in the medical sense, what we're offering them for treatment is effectively supportive care, like supporting your body to get through the worst of the of the illness. And you wrote The Doctor's Guide to COVID, which is amazing. How can people access that? Yes, it's right in our highlights in Parsley Health on Instagram if you want to go there. Um, you can also sign up for our newsletter list at parsleyhealth.com. And we did a complete guide, not only with everything to know about the virus itself, but what to do from a nutrition standpoint, supplements, immunity support, mental health, and kind of gave you the whole shebang of how to support yourself. Because again, what most of us can do right now and this is kind of the weird untold story of this situation, but that we as physicians are seeing a lot is that, you know, like you can't get, if you aren't a Parsley member, you can't get a doctor's appointment right now. Like I, I took my daughter to her two month visit at a pediatrician this morning. That's at a general practice that's closed except for uh, children two and under. And people can't go to their dentist. They can't go to their doctor all of our chronic conditions didn't like up and go away when this happened. Everyone is dealing with, frankly, access as needed to some degree to acute care, but almost no access to chronic care. And so there's a lot, you know, we can do as a, as a population, not just to stay home, but in our view to stay healthy at home, because you don't want to end up needing to go out and to use urgent care or to use the hospital or to use the doctor's office, either because we want to save those resources for the front lines or because they're simply not available, right? And I know in the guide, you speak to all sorts of things, as you said, but um, maybe we end on nutrition. I know you, everybody at Parsley, all your doctors and health coaches refer a lot of people to Sakara, but maybe just high level, some of your nutrition tips for, um, this pandemic in particular? Yeah. Well, you know, food delivery services are incredibly valuable right now. Um, so thank you guys for keeping us healthy and fed and for doing it with real, real like fruits and vegetables, right? Like plants, we need plants. Um, so a lot of people are, you know, kind of default team to like living on snacks, which is easy and work from home, moment and taking that extra beat to make yourself some food or to order delivery of truly healthy food. Like this is, it's not an ideal time to live on like noodles and takeout for like months, right? We have to make sure that we're taking care of our bodies in order to take care of our immunity. And so to do that, lots of fruits and vegetables, avoiding 
processed flour, processed sugar, refined carbohydrates, those things you'll hear me rail against a lot. And getting tons of fiber to feed your healthy gut microbes and the good bugs. Um, Also to keep your blood pressure down, keep your blood sugar down and keeping blood sugar balanced. So making sure you're getting a mix of proteins, greens, and healthy fats. Um, Omega-3 is really beneficial for the immune system. All those phytonutrients in your greens and your vegetables are really healthy for the immune system. And just keeping your blood sugar stable is also really important for energy and for immunity when you're kind of clocking on your computer all day or whatever it is that you're doing working from home. Mm -hmm. Or if you're out and you're an essential worker and, you know, like I saw you guys post something around delivery to hospital workers, which I thought was really awesome. And there's some really amazing initiatives out there getting food from closed restaurants to the front lines. And I'm just like, the more we can get healthy stuff to our workers. And so thank you guys for sending the healthy food because that is what keeps you going. Because if you have the sugar crash from your cupcake, that is not what's keeping you going all night. That's not what's giving you, making you good decisions. And that's also not what's going to help those healthcare workers fight off the COVID-19 that they are being exposed to in their line of work. So it's like, it, it matters. So thank you. Absolutely. And I do just want to take a moment to give Parsley a quick shout out and plug here too, that I think when you're going through something that can be really scary like this, to have a doctor that you can call, that you have a direct email to, like just being able to message Parsley doctors and ask questions and know that there's somebody there and somebody there to keep you healthy, not just when you're sick, I think is so important that it's, it's like having a friend that's a doctor because uh, not everybody has a friend that's a doctor that they can call. And yeah. so, yeah, I think what you guys are doing is, is really great and really important during these times. So thanks for keeping it going. Thank you. Thank you for being members. We are here for you. And now for our discussion with Dr. Robin Burzen on Functional Medicine 101. Hi, Robin. We are so happy to have you with us virtually today. So we like to just ask you, what is your mission here on this planet? Oh, what a great starter question. I love just like going right into it. Um, I think that I'm here to bring healing. I think that happiness is giving the world what you want the most yourself, which is an insight that I heard Eve Ensler, the creative of the vagina monologue say in one of her amazing Ted talks. And I think that that is a really nice way of articulating like the why of all of us for many of us who follow our passions. And I feel like bringing healing and greater insight into your own health and wellness is why I'm here. And so that's what I get to do as a doctor. And that's what I get to do with Parsley Health. So it's good. And you chose a very specific path to healing. You know, there's all different modalities and types. So could you speak to functional medicine in particular and how that plays a role in Parsley and your mission? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a conventionally trained doc and, and trained at Columbia and Mount Sinai. And those are amazing institutions to train in medicine. And also I got an incredible foundation in, in conventional medicine, but I noticed during my training uh, that there were some things missing. And so it wasn't an, it wasn't an, or it was an, and, and the things missing were the things that were driving really like 90% of our health care costs today are driven by chronic lifestyle-driven illnesses, everything from heart disease and diabetes, Alzheimer's, autoimmune, hormone imbalances, infertility, mental health, depression, anxiety, gastrointestinal issues, acne, migraines, all of these things that we live with. And 60% of American adults have at least one chronic condition. They, they were being kind of managed by medications, but they, people weren't getting better. And so I saw that we weren't bringing to the prescription pad the things that would make us better. We were putting drugs and procedures on the prescription pad, and those are really important and good, but we weren't adding nutrition, mental health, sleep, fitness, relationships, love, your environment, um, all the things we know that drive the majority of those illnesses. And so that was kind of like a huge aha moment for me. And I was really lucky to know about and then ultimately to learn to practice uh, this approach called functional medicine, 
which is this wonky term that not everybody knows, but it is really just about bringing together the best of conventional medicine, of drugs and procedures and advanced testing with this idea that the body can heal if given the right inputs. And this idea that we can get to the root cause, the why of why you have migraines, why you have anxiety, why you have heart disease, why you have blood sugar problems, all the list goes on. And if we figure out the why, we can steer the body to healing. And so that's really what functional medicine is about. It really isn't that different than conventional medicine. It just has a bigger set of tools in its toolkit generally. Um, And it asks the deeper question, since we're on deep questions today, uh, which is the why. So about this idea of the root cause, can you talk a little bit more about what exactly that means? Like what the why is maybe in some examples or something? Yeah, definitely. So we have lots, lots of case studies. Um, one Whitney and I, I know share is, is chronic acne. So this is a, um, something that she and I know have both dealt with in our lives. And oh yes, oh, yes right. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And so this is a really straightforward example in some ways, but also sort of a complex one because I had always had great skin. I tell the story. I got to med school. I was going through a really crazy breakup at the time. I was super stressed. Also probably med school might've had something to do with it. I don't know. And, uh, you know, I developed really bad cystic acne and, you know, we tried everything. We tried uh, antibiotics with the dermatologist. We tried the birth control pill. We tried spironolactone, which is a heart medication. They were even injecting my zits with steroids, which is not a good thing to do because it leaves scarring, but they were trying to get these huge pimples to go down. And I was just like, where is this coming from? And eventually later in, in my training, I learned about this idea of functional medicine or looking at the root cause. And I learned about this concept of leaky gut or intestinal permeability, which you can develop at any point in life. It's not something you're born with. You can develop it from drinking too much alcohol, from medications like ibuprofen too often, from chronic stress or or really severe stress, um, from an infection, a number of different causes. And probably from stress, I must have developed this. And so I I developed new allergens or sensitivities in my case, to wheat and dairy. And these are foods I had eaten growing up and didn't think too much about uh, and were pretty pervasive in my diet. I was vegetarian, so I was eating a lot of wheat and a lot of dairy and probably not the best quality of either. And eventually when I learned about, you know, why am I breaking, thought, why am I breaking out and looked into functional medicine, started learning about it. I went on a simple elimination diet and lo and behold, in six weeks, my acne was effectively totally gone. And so that is like one example and food sensitivities are not always the why. The why could be an underlying infection. The why could be your diet in general, but not necessarily something you're allergic to, but just the way that you're eating. The why could be, have been a major accident or surgery that triggered something a while back. And so what we do at Parsley is we do this really big intake with you before you start. As you guys both know, we ask a zillion questions and it yeah. takes a long time, but we do a lot of in-depth investigation. I almost call it, I like to call what we do kind of like the investigative journalism of medicine. We want to know if you were born C-section or not. We want to know the medications you were taking as a kid. We want to know what you were eating and we want to know like when all this started, like what changed? Because so often... And, and then we do really in-depth diagnostic testing, which I can talk about. But oftentimes, like for me, the, the thing that happens that's crazy is that the why is in the person's story. Oh, I was really stressed when this was happening and I had the surgery. And when did your migraine start? Oh, my migraine started a couple of years ago. What was happening a couple of years ago? And someone say, well, I was going through a divorce and I switched jobs or I moved and I stopped exercising. Like often the why is in the story and in our current medical system, which is very acute care focused, 10-minute visits, 15-minute visits, there's no time to ask you any of that. You kind of get through like, okay, you're alive, your vital signs are in check, here's your refill by. And that is broken, you know, whether we're dealing with an acute illness or a more chronic one like any of the ones I've talked about. I think there is so much around talking about what kind of foods to take out of your diet but I think what's less talked about is all the foods that you need to eat to help with, you know, get to the root cause and really help your body get all the nutrients it needs in a single day, knowing that most people, especially in America, 
are malnourished and it has nothing to do with your weight, your BMI, that being malnourished can actually just mean that you're not getting certain nutrients because you're not eating nutrient-rich foods. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the body healing is just the right inputs and real food that is ideally organic whole foods, fruits and vegetables. You know, right now during, during this time of COVID-19, I get asked all the time, what supplements do you take? What are you taking? What are you giving your kids? What are you like telling your patients? And I'm, I'm, I have answers to that question because there are answers, but I'm always like to say the first supplements are fruits and vegetables because all of the phytonutrients in real foods are incredibly empowering to your immune system and critical for your immune system to function. And unfortunately, uh, in this country, a lot of people don't even have access to those foods. We've made those foods the harder to access thing, either through price or through just making convenience foods, these kind of anti-nutrient, high-sugar foods high sugar, high refined carbs filled with preservatives, filled with kind of just like not real ingredients. And so when we get that stuff out and we fill our bodies with real whole foods, the body like knows what to do with that. That is information our cells can use to support our energy, to support our mood, to support our digestion and to support our immune system. I know like talking about, like we talk so much about your journey and you tried taking out everything to help with your acne. Yeah, it wasn't until we did the opposite. I had eliminated all the way down to, I mean, we were doing a master cleanse and Whoa. <laughs> so really had tried elimination a lot. And I think that it was for me about that, about the nourishment, giving my body the right pieces in order to heal, in order to rebuild um, in order to build up that immune system, that lining in my gut, in order for my digestive system to function properly. And I think that it is like you were talking about, Robin, about giving your body the right inputs, whether that is the food and the nourishment you're feeding yourself through your food or the thoughts that you're thinking as well. Stress plays a huge role in all of these different types of immune conditions or chronic conditions. And I, I like that you also include that in your practice, which I think for a lot of people can feel very out there that your thoughts and what you're thinking can affect your physical health and your body. I mean, I know so many people that still feel like food doesn't really affect how you feel. Like where did, where do you think we made that departure of feeling like, okay, I can take an Advil and it changes how I feel, but my plate probably doesn't. Yeah. There's something about culture that shifted. And if you look back, I think a lot of it was, you know, kind of post-World War II, food safety was an issue, right? That's when we kind of began sterilizing everything, right? Canned foods and this idea that like, it was less about scarcity than safety. And also around mid-century you know, with the first antibiotics, we had these first pills that were these miracle cures, right? Things that had killed people and that we just had or debilitated people for, you know, forever before that suddenly were like curable in days with these antibiotics. And that, that I think those two things kind of led us. And then through mass media and marketing on this journey, that's now been much longer than 50 years beyond that, where we're like, we kind of got schooled as a culture that being medicated was a replacement for being well. And I always tell our patients being medicated is not a replacement for being well because the medications are there to generally manage illness. Most of them are not curing the illness. And what happens is if the underlying drivers of the illness, chronic stress, not moving, eating poor foods or eating foods you're allergic to, um, and, and others are not attended to. It's kind of like a fire is burning underneath your house. And you can keep kind of trying to smother the fire, but if you don't put out the fire, eventually the fire will keep growing and burn through your foundations, right? And so the drugs will only suppress the symptoms for so long if that fire is kept burning. And that's what you see 
For instance, in type 2 diabetes, you start with metformin and then you end up adding insulin. And what people don't talk a lot about with insulin and type 2 diabetes, which tens of millions of people in our country have or will have, is that once you're on injectable insulin, your mortality rate skyrockets. It's almost like a death sentence. It's like not a great long-term solution. And so I think it's important to recognize that we medications are incredible tools. They're really important. Like, you know, hammers in that tool belt that we're wearing as doctors, we need them. We want to appreciate them. We need to respect them because they're powerful tools. And so over-prescribing antibiotics and and medications is really not a good thing. And it's almost like we've, on the one hand, we put medications on this pedestal, but on the other hand, we sort of disrespect them by giving them out like without thinking about it. And what we do at Parsley is really just about, okay, medications are one tool, but what are the other tools in our tool basket? Nutrition is the first one. And so you'll, you guys know as, as Parsley members, you see in your health plan, your medical plan is 10 points in Parsley from the doctor. Um, so it's not that a, somebody else is prescribing you nutrition. The doctor is prescribing a nutrition plan. And the first thing in the 10 points is nutrition. We start with food. And medications and supplements come later on the list. And so that is considered you know, radical by some of my colleagues. But again, it's not, it's not with a disrespect to medications and procedures. It's with the highest respect to them, which is that we need to only use them when they're truly necessary. Food as medicine being one pillar of how you know we and obviously you think about helping people feel better. Um, can you talk about how stress and anxiety and kind of emotional mental health has an impact on our overall health? Because that's yeah. definitely far out for a lot of people too. Yeah, I think we all have also gotten schooled by this idea, like culturally or you know, I don't even know really where this one comes from, but that our minds and our bodies are separate and we're sort of walking around with a concrete wall between them like horizontally and what's happening up your head is not infecting what's happening in your body and vice versa. And that is just absolutely wrong. We at Parsley believe there's mind, there's body and spirit, and we need to treat all of them in order to treat the whole of you. And We know, for instance, that if you eat a high sugar, refined sugar diet, that that creates higher levels of inflammation in the brain. And that means, um, and that's correlated with um, depression. So there's this like very clear in the literature connection between what is going in your mouth and what you are experiencing emotionally. And it's funny because psychiatrists and psychologists refer to us at Parsley a lot. And when that first started happening, I was always like, this is funny. Like, why is this happening? And I talked to a couple of them and they were like, you know, you guys often are looking at the rest of the body and what else is going on. And we're not doing those tests. We're not, you know, doing a thyroid, simple thyroid blood test to see if your hypothyroidism is actually driving your depression. We're not addressing nutrition. And so the body is an ecosystem. It's an interconnected system. Your immune system extends to your brain through these tiny, tiny little lymph vessels that go into your brain. And your brain itself has an active immune system. And so if you have chronic inflammation um, in your body, that's going to affect your brain as well. We know that your gut microbes, the bugs or bacteria in your gut are making chemicals as part of their normal digestion that affect your mood. And so beyond the science of it, like we also know that if you are anxious, depressed, not sleeping, that these things are going to impact your behaviors and these things are going to impact your disease trajectory. So, you know, the converse is that the number one trigger for an autoimmune disease flare is stress. So a trigger for a Crohn's flare or a rheumatoid arthritis flare. And so just understanding that when your body is highly stressed, your cortisol levels are high, which is your chief stress hormone, you're living in a state of fight or flight. So your catecholamines, your norepinephrine, your epinephrine are turned on too frequently. This is a neurochemical bath that goes through your entire body. And you're, all of your cells experience the stress. And then that changes how your immune system works. And your immune system, when you're stressed, is actually less able to fight off, fight off pathogens like the flu. And you've talked a lot about inflammation, especially just now. Can you speak to what that is? Can we tell that we have inflammation or is that something that we have to be tested for? 
So sometimes both. So inflammation is this norm of your immune system. So your immune system should generally turn on when it's needed and then be quiet when it's not needed. And if you're fighting an infection like a flu or you've cut your leg and your body has to fight a bacterial infection, your immune system should turn on. And that's like an acute side of your immune system when we want that. But what happens when you're constantly triggering that immune system, either with a chronic infection, by eating foods that you are um, allergic to, through certain chemicals or medications, through you know overeating of sugar and changing your gut microbiome, all of these things are things that can chronically kind of irritate your immune system. It's kind of like telling your army in your body that's there to fight, like, to be just like out on guard and a little bit irritable all the time. And when that happens, there's collateral damage. There's collateral damage around your body from that army being out and about and active in a chronic low-grade way as opposed to just when it needs to fight something off or heal uh, heal something that's broken. And so that chronic inflammation is something that you might feel. You might feel it because you have joint pain, because it's um, driving an autoimmune condition or have breakouts and things like rosacea or acne or eczema or psoriasis. You might feel it in your mood, things like depression and anxiety, or it might be something that it takes a while for you to feel. And there are some blood tests that we can run that will uh, give us indications that there's some underlying inflammation. So we do look at those pretty routinely. And how much of this stems from the gut? We talk a lot about microbiome and listening to all of these different types of conditions, all these different chronic problems. It makes me wonder, are they all coming from different things in the body or or how much does the gut play a role in this? So what's really freaky to think about is that your, you know, your skin is the outside in your, of your body. And actually your skin is your largest immune organ. Your skin is interfacing with viruses and bacteria, which are a normal part of our ecosystem all the time, as well as ones that it might come into contact with that are pathogenic. It's there as protection. Similarly, in a weird way, your mouth all the way down through your digestive system is actually the outside of your body. And that digestive system had to uh, originate or develop over the millennia to be able to figure out friend or foe and to keep, if you were to eat a piece of fruit or, or something that had bacteria or something dangerous on it for you, to be able to form a really intact barrier to what is effectively the outside world and the interior tube of your digestive system. That's such a crazy thought. Like, Isn't it kind of weird? I, I, knew, I always knew that, but now the way you just <laughs> phrased it, I'm like, can you imagine if if we had like a beauty routine for our intestines, like we do for our face, I guess that's kind of Sakara. <laughs> I was going to say it kind of is the car life. A different kind of skincare. <laughs> yeah. But it that's is. So it's crazy. fruits and vegetables and ghee. And like if you eat bone broth, that is like a beauty routine for your gut. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and probiotics, right? And and the fibers and the fruits and vegetables would feed the good bacteria. So that lining of your gut is one cell layer thick, which is also crazy. And these are highly specialized cells. And behind the single cell layer is 70% of the immune system in your entire body possibly more. And so you have this really powerful immune system lining that very thin gut layer because we needed to be able to absorb nutrients very easily. We don't want a thick wall there or how are we going to, we can't survive because we can't get in nutrients. But we also need a really strong defense system because if that that wall is going to be that thin and permeable, then we've got to be ready to fight off anything that gets through that could kill us, right? So this is how we evolved to be smart organisms. And this is where our gut and our brain and our entire bodies are, and our immune systems are all connected. Again, this ecosystem. And so a lot of your immunity does start in the gut because if you destroy the good bacteria that protect that gut lining and give it information, if um, by eating the wrong foods or too many medications or alcohol, you'll hear my sort of same things over and over again. Or if you're chronically stressed, chronic stress can actually break down that lining between those cells you can then suddenly trigger that immune system, which is right there waiting. And then sometimes you start triggering that immune system just with the normal things you're eating. So again, back to the elimination diet, it's only part of the answer. You're right, Whitney, because ultimately we want to heal the gut in addition to just eliminating foods. The goal is not to eliminate them forever, unless they're like what I call kind of anti-foods or fine processed crap that we should only be eating hopefully every once and so often, not all the time. 
But if we heal that gut lining and we support a healthy microbiome, then we have our immune system there intact and it shouldn't be turned on all the time. It should be only turned on when it's needed. And that's really the ideal situation. And so this whole connection to the gut, your food, your immune system, is that why the microbiome is often referred to as our second brain? Yeah. Well, I mean, in your second brain actually is this enteric nervous system. So in addition to 70% plus of your immune system being in your gut, we also have, we have our central nervous system, which is like our brain and our spinal cord. We have our peripheral nervous system, which is like all the nerves throughout our body. And then we have this enteric nervous system, which is, has more neurons in it, more nerves in it than, um, or nerve cells in it than in your entire peripheral nerve system. It's a highly dense neural network. And 95% of the serotonin in your entire body is actually in your gut. And that nervous system is in contact with the microbes, right? So like you can't look at a magnifying glass or you know, a microscope and look at the bacteria on your skin and be like, hey, bacteria, like how's it going? Like, let's have a convo. But your nervous system can talk to that bacteria and vice versa. We have the ability to get exchange information, which is fascinating to me. Um, and so that is absolutely true. So in an interview, you said true wellness means feeling calm, energized, and having the tools you need to get back there when you don't. And I was just thinking about how you're talking about diabetes and it being a chronic condition and how difficult it can feel to change your life in order to fix a condition that feels huge and overwhelming like that. What are some tools in your toolkit or that you can offer to people and make changes in their lifestyle so that they can get better? Yeah. Well, you know, and that's one of the things I think that is that is the most tragic to me about type 2 diabetes in general. While some people might have a higher genetic predisposition for it than others, it is ultimately a lifestyle-driven disease. And when it's too far gone you, in the destruction of the, the pancreas, and the, the, which creates the insulin in your body, is too far gone, you can't fix it, right? And then you are dependent on insulin. So like we kind of another thing we've been schooled into in our culture is just like waiting till the wheels are falling off the wagon to do anything about it. Like waiting till we're broken and our medical system is set up like that. It's not proactive. And so what we can do, the first thing we can do is just like, be interested, like be interested in your body, connect with your body. Like don't accept that it's normal to feel foggy and exhausted and irritable and or in pain, like all the time, a lot, or allergic. All these people, I can't tell you how many young people, people in their 20s even, or 30s and 40s come in and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm super healthy and I don't have like uh, anything going on really. Uh, Oh yeah, I'm on like three chronic medications, but you know, I'm just on like an acid blocker all the time. And I'm on um, allergy meds that I take every single day. And then, oh yeah, I'm on that like medication I take all the time for my skin. Uh, and of course, you know, um, and I'm like, we have the symptom score, um, that we've created at Parsley called the Parsley Symptom Tracker. They'll be like, and, and, you know, score is like a 90 and they have like all these things going on. Oh yeah. I have horrible PMS. My cycles are irregular. And I'm just like, we've accepted like that as normal. Um, so I think just my first one and being well, is just take stock, feel like, how do you feel? Are you on a bunch of meds? Do you know why? Do you expect to be on them forever? If so, why? And it's amazing. Whitney and I talk a lot about this since starting Sakara. We've learned how many people are okay just feeling okay. And that, you know, we don't, so many people and so many of our clients, we get the feedback that they didn't even know they had the fog or they didn't know that the bloating they had after every single meal before starting Sakara like wasn't normal. And it wasn't until eating this way for several weeks that they started to kind of see the light at the end of yeah. the tunnel. I think that we, we are like sort of tuned out of our bodies. Mm-hmm. And then if, unless you're like a, like a pro athlete or somebody who's really into, you know, athleticism, and then you kind of almost, it's almost like the extreme opposite direction, but you sort of treat your body as this machine and you also ignore a lot of pain. And so we see both, we see these like ultra optimizer sort of athlete folks who are ignoring a lot of stuff going on. And then we see people who just never had the education. You learn to read in school, you learn math, but you don't learn really very much of anything about your body 
or what it takes to cultivate or generate a healthy one. It's just not part of our education or I think our, our shared language culturally, which is why like you guys being in, in the world is amazing, but also doing this podcast is amazing because it's like we all just, we need to collectively share this language of connection to our physicality because ultimately this is the one vehicle we have for life. You can't trade it in. And feeling good at it and it shouldn't be a luxury. It shouldn't be like, oh, well, I can at least get out of bed. That's good enough. Now, if that's where you're at, start there for sure. But there is a lot more that we can feel. Mm -hmm. And we want to end with what we call light work. This is a practice or a challenge that we give to our Sakara Light listeners to help move them out of their comfort zone and get them starting to practice some of the things that we've talked about today. So we'd love for you to share a light work practice to our listeners. So what I did, you know, a week into this as the, the fear was starting to take hold, because there's a lot of collective fear right now, right? And there's a lot of collective uncertainty. And if you're a business owner, if you're a parent, if you're pregnant, if your family member is elderly or has a chronic condition, if somebody you know is working on the front lines or someone you know is sick, right? So that's like everyone. We are all kind of matching this collective energy that feels us, makes us feel that we are totally out of control. And I think on one hand, it's this reality that we're never in control and having to confront that is really hard. And then I also think it's a great moment to say, okay, let me like recognize and feel my feelings. And that, that adage comes from a book I do a lot of work out of, which is uh, something called the 15 principles of conscious leadership, which I love, which one of the principles is just around feeling your feelings and kind of acknowledging them. Cause when we don't feel we like, they kind of take over us. And then I think from there, something that I did that really helped me is I like to write things down and I made a list of with a friend. I was doing like a FaceTime wine date with a girlfriend on a Saturday night. And we decided, how are we going to come out of this stronger? And so we wrote a list and we're each other's accountability partner. And we each wrote down like five things that we're going to just put in the back of our minds. And then we're going to look up in a couple months, whenever we feel that the world has stabilized a little bit underneath our feet, and we're going to look and see what we did. And so, you know, one of mine was just really relishing all the time I get to spend with my kids which, you know, often working so hard, I don't get to do. Um, and one of them was, you know, I'm going to get that post-baby body back. Um, <laughs> and so those are mine. Just like write it down, feel your feelings and then write, write, make a list. And you don't have to like look at it every day or judge yourself by it in any way, but like you might look at it in a couple of weeks and be s- surprised what you achieved. Mm-hmm. I love that. Like setting intentions for mm-hmm. this time. Yeah, just yeah. even that action of thinking about it and and putting some focus to it starts to turn it into a reality from thoughts to things. I was going to say, you guys taught me that. Thoughts to things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we love you. Thank you so much for joining love us and for all the incredible work you do in the world. Thank you so much. Stay healthy and well. I loved this episode for so many reasons, but one of the reasons I loved it was because we got to talk about inflammation in the body and how food affects it and what inflammation really is. That's because you're such a science nerd, Danielle. (laughs) You just love to talk about inflammation. (laughs) And what it is. Yeah, but it really is important because it affects the body and your overall health in so many different ways and even in ways that we don't think about on a regular basis. So today's Sakara story is from Rebecca from Sagaponic, New York. And she wrote in and said, with all that is going on in the world, I wanted to pause and say thank you to a real life hero to me, Christina. Christina is, um, just as a side note, she is a health coach on our customer service team here at Sakara. Rebecca goes on to say, I have battled with severe inflammation in my brain this past year and was introduced to Sakara. I am grateful and beyond to share that the lesions in my brain continue to shrink with the aid of anti-inflammatory properties of your delicious food. 
I've been eating and loving your food for months, at times having to stop my orders for hospital time. And Christina has gone above and beyond every single time, making sure your life-saving meals arrive at various addresses without any headache. I know at times I've driven her crazy, but she has always treated me with kindness, care, and hope. I pray that you and the entire Sakara team stay safe and well during this scary health corona crisis. To save a life is to save the entire world. Thank you to Sakara for helping save my life and Christina. With gratitude, love and light, Rebecca. What a beautiful story. It's so moving and so happy that we get to continue to support our clients and all of our Sakara lights out there during this crazy time and help get people some nourishment, some of those good fruits and vegetables like Robin was talking about today. Anti-inflammatory foods. Anti-inflammatory foods. And hopefully just continue to deliver people a little piece of normalcy and a little bit of light in all of this darkness that is going on right now. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rebecca, for sharing your Sakara story. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights.